Your name's not Dan, you're not coming in. Hey there, just a quick message ahead of this episode to say we hope you like the rebrand, which includes a new website, rawuk.com, that's the URL. On there you can listen to and watch all our previous content. You can get extra content. You can also buy our first ever Raw merchandise and even sign up to become a Raw member, which will keep us going and keep you at the heart of this exciting journey, earning perks in return. We need your support, so please do check us out at rawuk.com and remember to like, comment and subscribe to everything we do on all our channels. And of course, make sure you tell all your pals. But most of all, enjoy this latest episode. Cheers. So, Ian, um, in 1993, when Slipmat started creating the SMDs, and we've talked uh, earlier about why that uh, you, you were drawn to that happier sound and why you didn't necessarily go down the darker route, do you think that split in the scene was impossible um, to make sure that the, that, that the rave scene could evolve? Was there any way that it didn't need to split? No, I don't think, I think the, the, the split took a long time. You know, I think it was, it definitely worked side by side for a long time. The only time, um, you know, when it became a bit more, I'd say, into the happy hardcore thing. And it sometimes as a DJ, you, you had to sort of almost get used to the fact that, say I followed Groove Rider at the Sanctuary. When I went on, you would see people disappear out that back door because they were then going over to rollers but you had to get your head together because then if you look to the entrance of the sanctuary you would also then see that influx of people coming in so it was a bit of like you know as you were getting your first tune ready it would happen before you started the tune but you'd see everyone go out these big doors at the back and you'd be like oh my god or to the side depending where the stage was and you had to sort of like just think oh my god so there was that and you had I'd say it became more purist. So not purist, not in not in a uh, way, but uh, they, there were people that were more, well, I like the drum and bass sound, I like the jungle sound, and then there were people that liked the more happy hardcore and the happier sound. Um, but I think it did for a w- long time. There was definitely a bundle of ravers that liked a bit of all sorts and a bit of both, which was the best. You know, the first time I heard SMD, Matt play it was uh, Skegness. I'm not sure whether it was an actual Pleasure Dome event back then, but we was in Skegness. We was in the venue where Pleasure Dome was, and um, mate, he dropped it, and I was just like that. What's this? What's this? And uh, he had it on dub tape, and luckily we had a because we always used to be in Music House and uh, place like that. We had a bit of a session to cut each other's bits and bobs, and I got my fingers on it, and it was just like. This is ridiculous. This, this, it, and it what it felt like a real big change. You know, it, it was definitely that sort of step that it was like, well, this is this is big. You know, this, this I want more like this. I need I need an hour of this record. I need it. Uh, and then things did. It felt like that's the beginnings. Um, I know that again. There's been a big debate of where it started, and I completely agree. I think SMD one. Is a massive game changer, like huge, definitely. Um, and uh, it, let's be honest, right? It's drug music, right? It, 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 it's happy, euphoric, ecstasy music, right? Um, I don't know what we ask everybody, and you can say whatever you like to this question. Um, how big an influence were drugs on the scene? 
and also on the creation of the music. Did you ever do drugs? Was it ever, were, were you sort of, um, you know, were you led by that sound? Or I'm, I'm just interested to know your sort of uh, side yeah. of the story. I, I think it's, it's a massive part of culture, the scene, and, you know, all sorts of dance music is led by, you know, a heavy influence on drugs. I think, you know, people being drunk at a rave, even though it does happen, people definitely have drinks, it wouldn't have had the same impact that, that it had. Um, I just think it's, um, um, I don't know, I suppose it's, it's, again, it's that you thing, you, you, you come through a bit rebellious and you want to try things. You want to try things that you, you, you come in front of you and you think, oh, oh yeah, give that a go. And the two sort of go hand in hand, I suppose, with any type of rave, especially back then, you know, the, the raves were the only things happening. Nowadays, you've got all sorts of festivals and events and club events. And I think, you know, the, the drug culture still lends into that. You know, when you hear tragically when things go wrong, sometimes it's in com really commercial clubs or, you know, even in people's houses. And you just think, oh, God, you know, it is it is there. It is part of it. Um, music wise. Yeah, I think. Um, it had an influence as me as a sort of producer because you would sort of like think, right, you know, what's really going to get people going? You know, what's going to bring on them sort of vibes that makes people go, oh, well, you know, back then everyone said it was the rush. You know, what what would yeah. what would do it? And the, then big epic piano lines and strings and vocals, you would just sort of take yourself back to that sort of vibe of thinking, mate, me stood in a club with lights going and you know people around me this is just gonna work this is gonna sound great so i suppose yeah you you I, I did sit there in a studio wanting it to sound a certain way but it wasn't right this is deliberate to do it there it was always um clever to try and get drug references in music you know I, i'd say I, I personally at my age wouldn't deliberately do it now as a as a way to you know, unless a sample came up or an idea came up that was really cool and, you know, brilliant, um, I might do it. But the the direct reference of, you know, ecstasy or whatever, um, I suppose back then it was, again, it was almost that naughty, like, oh, they're, they're talking about, you know, you can go back to Shaman, Ebenezer Good, sort of when they did that. You know, not more cup of tea as a track, but what a genius bloody lyric to come up with. You know, when they sat there in the studio, they must have just gone, this is just gold. This is just brilliant. We're, we're just going to absolutely bamboozle. Top of the Pops, Radio 1, they ain't going to have a clue how to deal with this because you can't say, oh, it's referencing drugs because it's not. But it is. And, and those early, you know, so, so those early tracks you were creating... Um... <laughs> thinking what's going to make people buzz what's going to make people rush and you know you created some of those early ones jack attack etc etc um what was it like seeing ravers when you've created a tune like jack attack for instance you know one of your very early tunes seeing the ravers getting that rush to that tune on the dance floor yeah oh, that that's the that's the drive that's the honestly that's the, and it's still the drive today when someone says a lyric back to you or you, you could see them singing, or the best one is when they nudge whoever they're with. Yeah, that, to be honest, that is the drive. You know, that's what pushes me as a producer forward, as a DJ. When you see someone recognise the tune, or even for the first time, see them again, you know, they're either nudging their mate, it's a new tune, or listen, 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 or they're nudging their mate because they know the tune, 
and there's that connection with them, that track means something to him. There's honestly nothing better. And um, places abroad tend to do this a little bit more. You get um, people that I'd say are big, not, not train spotters, that's, that's rude, but, you know, they tend to stand and want to listen to what you're doing rather than being a raver dancing. So you watch them, you know, you see them sort of stood there and, and they're the ones that then when you come off, they sort of make a, 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 a beeline for you or they, they come over to talk to you. And then they've got so many questions of what was this? What was this remix? What was that track? What was this? That's a slightly different edit. And you're like, this is amazing. This is so <laughs> cool. That someone's took so much interest in what I've done, you know, especially, um, you know, if it's something new, there is nothing better because that's the worst thing for a dj or for me i can't talk for other people is when i've done a new tune i've sometimes got that on now my usb i'll have it for show after show after show but i, I just can't bring myself to sort of want to drop it sometimes because you 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 thrive off that instant reaction and sometimes if it's a really especially if it's a not a bootleg it's completely original new vocals new everything you sort of stand there and think Oh, I don't think they're ready for it. I don't, you know, and so you, you come away sometimes and it is getting that sort of step of the first time you play it track to then hoping, you know, over time that it becomes that track again. But you've just got to, for me, I've got to get over that hurdle sometimes of bloody playing it because I stand there and think, well, they're going off to this at the moment. If I do that, I don't want them to drop down. I don't want them to sort of be like, well, what is this? I was just singing to the last five songs I knew. So you sometimes might, it, it's a bit of a brick wall with me sometimes, but once I've started playing it, it's, it's handy now because I get the radio station. So I do get to try things out there first. So it gives me a bit more confidence to think, yeah, I can drop that now. Well, it's an interesting time because of coronavirus. I, a lot of the DJs that we speak to, or, or producers rather, are like, I'm creating tunes and I've got absolutely no idea whether it's going to be good or not. But I know that I can't make the same stuff that I was making prior to coronavirus because you just can't do that. It's not acceptable to be doing that. And the sound would have changed and the crowd would have changed all that. So it's, it, it, it's interesting, the, the idea of how important raves are for playing. In terms of... Um, you know, you, you launched, you did a couple of those, bit, you know, really great early tunes. And then we, we're, we're there. Uh, you released uh, the famous tune. And it, to say it's divided opinion is, um, is probably putting it mildly. Um, it's Toy Town. Yeah. Uh, you made that in collaboration with your good pal Sharky. Loads of questions on it. Um, love it or hate it. it. It'd be an understatement to say that Toy Town is one of, the single most recognisable happy hardcore track of all time, I think you could probably say. Um, interested to know about this. How, how did it come about? Why did it come about? Did you know that you had a, a, an absolute stormer on your hands? And did you have any idea that it would divide opinion so much? <laughs> um, I, I've fallen in and out of love with it myself over the years. Um, I'm <laughs> definitely back in love with it again now. I have oh, are you? Okay. Okay. Um, it, it, it's strange. It um, back when it, me, me and Sharky actually spoke about the the sort of how we all sort of came about it a couple of weeks ago, and it was it was a bit of a again it was one of those chain of events that just seemed to sort of happen. I was working in the studio in Farnborough, and not Farnborough, Farnham, and I was sat there and for, for, you know, and this is how mad it was back then. Um, Sharky turned up at the studios. Um, he was in the area and he popped in to say hello. And I was working on a track um, 
and he he I'd never been in a studio with him or been been around John in in a studio. Uh, I don't think actually I don't know whether he'd even made anything at that point. But he he came on and there was a keyboard in front of me and he played like this. Um, it was like a rock and roll rift. Well, I went and I was like, I said, mate, what's that? I was like, mate, we've got to make a tune like that. That's brilliant. I really like it. So anyway, whatever happened, we sorted out going up to studios. And we put originally Toy Town was it was going to be called Bonkers because Bonkers again, all sort of a bit intermingled. The Bonkers name came about from a pub in Butlins in Maidenhead, and I was there with Ramoth Nighty, Sunset Regime, and they all had Bonkers T-shirts on in this bar, and I was just like, Bonkers, what? A bloody brilliant name for a track uh you know a concept a night and i was just like that keeping that in my head so anyway the john sharkey thing had happened and we were like right come on and get in the studio so i was like look i've got this name that rock and roll riff at the end of it i want you to get on the mic and say this is bonkers you know that can be the tag you know this is bonkers so we did it we laid it all out and it was two similar-ish uh, rock and roll style riffs nothing in the middle it just broke down from that one to that one so i was like we just it just needs something it needs something to break out let's do like like a middle section so we laid out some chords and john the noise um i'd wanted to use the choir noise i had on a on a, an old record record outside world so sampled up the noise i was like i want to do something like this let's make it you know really sort of like german trance type buzz so john played started playing what became toy town but it was like double speed so, it went, bah, 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 so double speed and i sort of sat there and i was like i oh, don't know don't know and it was just the the first little section so we sort of sat there and milled around. I was like, yeah, I like it, but I don't know, I don't know. And we was all sort of scratching our heads a bit. And I sat there and I was like, right, let's on Cubase, you could open out the part and you could sort of then change as a grid. So you can then change where, where it goes. So just started pulling it all, all across. We changed the timing of it to the speed of Toy Town. And it was like, there, there we go. That's something that works. You know, it sounded at the at the time it was something that i'd not sort of come across there i was like oh my god that's sort of very similar to this it sounded fresh so we laid it all out and then did the second half of the toy town riff because the melody sort of goes over very different it's not a repetitive pattern it's quite a, a, a long uh repetitive pattern and we had that in the middle of this track with again as it kicked in with a little sample of john saying this is bonkers went away um the first time we went away came home was listening to it playing it to people everyone was like yeah this is a brilliant track but everyone at the time was sort of saying that middle section's like brilliant that's that's the bit that is the bit and it was like yeah the the rock and roll copied pattern seemed a bit cheap and obvious but we had this like magical middle bit that was original so we went back up and we put the rock and roll bit in the middle and we put the first toy town riff at the beginning and came up with the second toy town uh, melody for the end sort of sat there and yet yeah, this is brilliant and that night we would we booked two days in the studio so we were staying at some of our friends who lived down the road and you know pretty much all night because back then uh, they were they were ravers as well 
So we was just literally rewinding this tape, just listening to this tune all night. We were just sat there chatting, but in the background was this all night. Um, and again, it sort of just came up that like, oh, I just this rock and roll bit just sounded just like not right. It just didn't fit. So we went back up, and that's when the middle riff, the da 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 da, da that got put in its place, and. We just sort of said, right, should we just get rid of the, the bonkers thing now? Because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it didn't fit the track. So we got rid of the bonkers thing. Um, and the name Toy Town again came about, it is from Noddy and Big E's, but it was actually an area in Chessington World of Adventures. And we had been there um, again. I think it was Murray from Dreamscape, Dave Howard Scour, Dougal, you know, slip out. A group of us had gone up there for whatever reason. I love that. Uh, and this area this was called all, all, these hard, just thought, all these hardcore DJs you know, going to, uh, to check it again. <laughs> yeah. And, and I just thought, God, yeah, that, that's a great name. You know, that is a good name. And yeah, whilst it was attached to Noddies and Big Ear, and we put the Noddies and Big Ear mix because John's ears, you know, stuck out. And we sort of said, <laughs> oh, I'll be Noddy, you be Big Ears. You know, we'll just call it that because it was, you know, again, it was a bit of tongue and cheek. It was a bit funny. And I can remember we had, we did two mixes, and this was the point. It was, it was, um, we did one that was a little bit more breakbeat uh, with the Eamon leading with a softer kick. And then we did one with this just outrageous distorted kick that was, again, we did it for more of a, right, that would be more for up north and this one would be for more down south. And out of the two now, I do prefer the breakbeat uh, one with the, the, the more subtle kick. Um, but at the time, you know, it was, the for me, it was like, I'm playing, this is the one. And I can remember getting a call from Dougal. He played in Bagley's in London. Um, and I think it was either for Labyrinth. It might have been for Labyrinth up there. It was, it was for some, it was definitely at Bagley's. And he went, I played the, the, the kick drum one, the harder one in London. And I was just like, what? What? I said, what, what do you mean? You played the kick drum one, like the full on version. He was like, yeah. I was like, what, what happened? He went, yeah, it went off. It was, it, it like really went off. And back then, you know, honestly, there was, there was, I wouldn't say a, a north-south divide, but there was just an area divide that you knew if you went to like Liverpool, you'd be playing like more bouncy techno and the kick drummy sort of stuff and the breakbeat stuff you'd sort of definitely leave alone. Same with in Scotland, you know, the breakbeat stuff, some of it worked up there and people loved it, but they were definitely just like kicking snares and offs and, and so you knew. And London was 100% one of them areas that, you know, you did stay away from the more kick drum led stuff because it just wasn't, it didn't ever seem as popular. But he did that. And then I suppose it just opened the, the floodgates for that time and that era where everyone was just like, right, OK, then let's just give this go. And then I suppose, again, the crowds evolved because some of the, it was that moment that, that some people left the scene, uh, some people you know, didn't like the, the, the evolution of it, you know, but I was at an age and, and, and a vibe that I loved the evolution, you know, as much as I loved what we were changing and had left behind that new evolution, uh, you know, the BPM was going up, everything about it at the time was just like, Oh my God, this is mad. This is brilliant. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say I look back at it with regret at all, but I do understand, again, even with the tune, I understand the marmite-ness of it. Um, I get it, you know, because it was a very defining. There were definitely more 
what I'd say happy hardcore tracks prior to Toy Town that were clearly happy, happy hardcore. Um, but Toy Town was that one that really blew up. You know, at the time, it was played we, by everyone. The, we've had some questions on it, Ian. Uh, and Living Here on YouTube says, I don't believe that you can kill a scene with one tune. Because now, if you look at people discussing it, people are like, that for me was the death of Happy Hardcore, and I left, and I never went back, blah, blah, blah. So, but you've got other people going, you know what? It was fun, and I liked it, and it was a banger, right? So it does divide opinion. It is Marmite. But Living Here says, I don't believe you can kill a scene with one tune. If cheese is to blame, there is worse out there than Hixie. I think Hixie becoming popular after the scene split made him the figurehead for the happy hardcore scene, and that made him a target for the old school who don't like happy hardcore. He therefore asks, do you think Toy Town is unfairly used as a scapegoat for the demise of hardcore? Nah, I, I, it wasn't the demise of hardcore. It was the beginning of something. Something else. <laughs> it, it changed it for people, and that's the thing. Do you know what I mean? Some people, music's evolved. Through, through my journey in the scene, it's evolved so much for me. You know, I've gone from, whilst I still love the early breakbeat stuff at 128 BPM, 130 BPM, I still love stuff. Well, now, you know, there's this French call sort of blowing up and some of that's at 200 BPM plus. If someone told me I'd like a 200 BPM plus tune, I'd have laughed at them because I've never quite liked it that fast. But some of it's brilliant. It's changed my thinking about it um so i think it didn't necessarily uh kill the scene because the other people that were producing and making that music could have continued making it if they wanted some people did you know some people did continue making it it was just that i was on a different path and a lot of new people were coming into the scene around then as well and you know for years it 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 was unbelievable it was an unbelievable journey or era to be a part of um, and yeah, for me, there was definitely some more ha what I would say were the beginnings of Happy Hardcore prior to Toy Town, but Toy Town just bl blew up. You know, it was one of those tracks that everyone seemed to play. So I can get it. If you're if you're in the the, the, the latter years of your raving as well, at that point, I could see why some people are like, this is so different to what I loved and what I got into. Um, but for some people, that was almost the beginning of their, their journey. You know, that was the beginning of the start of us then leading on to bonkers and things like that. So for some people, that was the beginning of their sort of journey into the rave music. Well, let's talk about bonkers because around about that time, it did that. You did, you did finally get to use that name, uh, and you yeah. used it to, to great success. As we've heard, bonkers won 60 pounds. So, uh, something, you did something right there. Um, but it was the biggest, um, hardcore compilation. It was on, it was advertised on telly, you know, it was a real big seller. It was, it, it did a huge amount for the scene. Tell us about how it came to pass. I mean, obviously, you know, we know the name now came from a t-shirt in a pub, but uh, beyond yeah. that, uh, the sort of, you were the brains behind it and you set it up and you created it and you, and you led it. So, so tell us all about how it all came to pass and, 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 um, and what your, what your aim for it was and your ambition yeah. at the time. At the time, again, it, it was just a sort of thing in my head we had gone, I got a phone call from the distributor, um, Mo's Music Machine distributed our vinyl. And um, Lee, a fella up there, rung me and said, record label called React, trying to get old you. They, you know, they're all over Toy Town. They love it. They want to um, license it. They, at the time, they wanted to get Tony DeVee to do a remix of it. Um, and they wanted to see where they could take it. So I was like, okay, this is good. So they, we sort of like got in contact uh, along the way. I'd missed a few meetings and John in the end, I said, look, get up there and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let's start talking and let's see what's, what's going to happen with it. 
So anyway, we'd organised a meeting where it was both of us to finally go in because we discussed a few things on the phone. And I walked into the office. Uh, I was based up in Putney at the time. And there was in their office, there was a massive Carl Cox fact album poster behind James Horrocks and Thomas Foley, who were the, the head honchos of React. And I sort of sat there and like my head was, I just was gone because I was just thinking, they do the fact albums. This company do the fact albums. They do the Carl Cox fact albums. And we were talking about Toy Town. I was just going, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, I'm look, I'm up for anything. And I was trying to sort of just say, look, let's just get this sort of done. Um, and at the time, we were talking about publishing and just crap like that, 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 that they wanted to sort of take on some publishing and things. Uh, and I just sort of said, look, let's just forget Toy Town a minute. And I just said, did you do the fact albums? I said, is that post right? Because you've done this. And they were like, well, yeah. And I was like, right. I said, I've got an idea. I said, look, I said, I've got loads of music. We've got loads of people around us. I said, why don't we do a concept where it, at the time, and John still, I was unaware, but John wanted to DJ. But at the time, he was MC Sharky. So I was like, look, let's do this thing. I'll do a mix. Sharky can MC over it. We'll do it like a studio thing, but really high quality. I said, let's get this out there as, as an album, to which they bit onto straight away. And they were like, yeah, we looked at the sound of this. I said, you know, I've said I've, I've got a few ideas for names and things like that. So we bounced backwards and forwards. And then over the course of time, then John, we started talking. And John was like, well, I'd like to do a, a CD too. And I was like, Pfft all day i said this is even better because john was left of my fields you know i was one direction he was another direction but we were still within that music the rave scene bubble was there and it was like well you're gonna completely complement what i leave out and vice sort of versa so we sort of got got the concept together uh i said about the bonkers name i said look i'm more than happy for it to be used and abused because it sat there and i said if anything what a perfect branding for it um and that was it it sort of bore bore out and um bonkers one i put did the, we did the mix we did all the track listings the albums came out and i'd put a bass d and king matthew track on there called like a dream it samples madonna now at the time me i've got no clue that that is so bad and can cause a nightmare. So we had done Bonkers one. It had gone out. Some had gone out. So I get a phone call from Thomas. And he was always the calm, you know, on, but he wasn't at this point. And he was like, Hixie, there's a fucking Madonna stamp on your CD. And I was like, yeah. I was like, you've licensed it. And he was like, but it's on the, the, the CD's gone out. It's, it's like in the shops. I was like, uh, right. So then they obviously talked to me about how bad it was and the, the fact that it could be just pulled from the, the, you know, and then not be taken back by Woolies at the time. You know, Woolworths was the Dons. You know, they were the main yeah. ones. So I was like, oh, so there are some Bonkers One CDs out there with the sample in there. That And you know, I, I don't even know whether people are aware of it. But there well, that are, might be more than 60 quid, that one. Well, yeah. <laughs> so there are some out there that have got the full Like a Dream Madonna sample in there. And then what we did was cut out the, the Madonna sample and it got repressed and 
out there. But that was like the really That's early fantastic. learnings of me, even though I'd got a record label and things like that. And, you know, we, we prodded along that, oh, actually, there's a big difference between a bootleg and, you know, the odd cheeky little thing that you're firing out to putting something in an album and putting it into HMVR, Price and Woolworths. So yeah, it yeah. was a... Uh, a good a, it was a, a learning curve yeah it was and, and it was and I, I just could never forget because james spoke to me afterwards as well but thomas who's very calm and talks very correct he wasn't <laughs> he wasn't Brilliant. at all so what so what do you what would what do you think that the impact of bonkers was on the, the popularity of of the music and the music scene and I, and I i wonder like when i listen to them now i listen to bonkers one and it's quite accessible um it's quite sort of and i wonder if that's deliberate so you know there's a lot of scratching as well you're really showcasing your skills and then you it becomes a little bit more obscure i mean every style is different in fact of, of bonkers i've listened to all of yours but but it becomes a little more more obscure uh, obscure sorry in in number two was that was that deliberate to sort of draw people in with your mixing and, and scratching skills with accessible music but then they buy num number two because they like number one and then it sort of educates them in in hardcore music um it wasn't i wouldn't say deliberate deliberate but bonkers one um it it changed again for me with each bonkers bonkers two is probably the, the no there was a couple bonkers two i i wanted to put a little bit more of what i really loved on there but i knew i was going to miss off some of them accessible tracks on there um and the the reactions from our distributors what through woolies and uh, the r prices and that it wasn't coming back as positive so bonkers three and then if, if people look at the time it was why i've remixed things like entrance set you free and you know i was always trying to get something and, and because i had the clout of our album sales and the help of uh, react that we could approach some people to say look can we officially remix this for this project um so i did do it and then there was a few albums um along the way that that, that we completely sort of went again left the field for me you know me and uh jason ufo you know we we was going for a, a you know a complete wanting to change this was towards the real end of what people would say was happy hardcore um and just just said well should we just do what what we think sort of thing we we, we were so influenced with hard house and trance at the time this was you know, late 98, 99, maybe, maybe, yeah, no, yeah, 98, 99. And um, again, you know, we just went completely sort of in a different direction. Now, that album for some people, you know, they, 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 they love it. It's, it's one of their favorite ones of the series. But again, from the feedback where I hadn't picked off some of these tracks that would be the, the poster boy, so to speak, or the, 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 the advert um tag they they didn't have no commercialized music to to pin on when when they were trying to sort of advertise the album so again it was sort of led that right okay and it, i wouldn't say i didn't enjoy remixing and trying to set you free guys a no brain i've remixed it a couple of times now it's one of my favorite vocals ever um but sometimes i i my dj sets i love to throw in randomness you know like I, I love the fact if someone says i wasn't expecting you to play that but that was brilliant you know that again is something i get off on a dj if someone says you you played some stuff i i, I wasn't expecting to hear tonight but i loved it 
and and that that's your goal, I suppose. Sometimes, so with an album that that restriction is is there. You can't always throw a real left field track for you or what you're known to play on an album because sometimes it, it doesn't always work. Like well, you've got a choice. You can either do an underground album and be happy with it and not maybe achieve the commercialized sort of success of it. Or you sort of play the game a bit, and I wouldn't, like I said, I wouldn't say I dislike the the, the commercial tracks having remixes. I love it; it's great fun, but it does give you a slightly different um, audience or or people that would pick up a physical copy of an album because they see on a tag or they hear on a tag that a certain artist is on there or a tracks on there. It was this. This is what was the goal with the Clubland album from the get go. It was like this catalog that you've got control of because at the time all around the world were part of universal we just got to utilize this because this is going to be the selling point of these albums and it, and it was whilst we had amazing original music in abundance at that point with it some of these key commercial tracks were just just mind-blowingly powerful on the on how it pulled people into buying them albums because they might not be into hardcore rave music but they were into the stuff that was in the charts and all of a sudden there was a more extreme version of that music, you know, and that that's the thing. Everyone always likes something a little bit more harder or faster because they, they hear it on the radio or whatever, but everyone hears that on the radio. They want this version because it's like, well, this is different. I haven't heard this on the radio. This is great. So yeah. That, well, that, that's Bonkers was a huge commercial success and it saw you start to headline, you know, your dreamscapes, fusion, hardcore heaven, helter skelter, resurrection, slam of United, all of them, uh, you know, in, in, in 96, you were really riding the crest of the wave. Is there any particular rave that you, that stands out in that period for you that was like, this is the fucking shit. <laughs> um, there was loads to be honest. I, I, and again, I think it might be, um, just at the time you just had was just you're so sort of involved in it, you don't realize it at the time you 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 stand up and you know for me it was always sort of following certain djs or again you know if there was certain mcs on the stage i'd be stood there thinking oh my god you know there <laughs> oh really you know what i mean so it's, it was more that and i got used quite early on to the the, the sort of where sanctuary was such a massive part of our lives i got a, a very quick instruction to playing to quite large crowds. So mm. I, I wouldn't say I ever got used to it. I still got that nervous sort of feeling, but there were so many big mental raves that I suppose um, there was nothing that made me all of a sudden go, Oh, we've done it. it, it Cause it, it again, it was a, a you know, a, who, a who in, in that case, slightly different question, I suppose. Who, who were your favorite promoters to work for and why? Um, Murray Dreamscape was um, massively influential for me. He, he had uh, some words of advice to me. I've recently put it on Facebook, actually. He had some words of advice to me on my first booking that scared the crap out of me um, of how I would move forward in my career and realising that I was on first and I should be acting as a warm-up DJ and not basically fucking up the rest of his rave um and i just loved his attitude you know because whilst um i was a nipper on the scene new new face he was always ready to have a good chat he always asked me because um i'd started going to scotland quite a lot 
and he'd always ask about what was happening up there and what the people were like up there. And um, he just was genuine. You know, he, he really was. And I got to have a few, like we did have the odd little mad day out here there, Chessington and a couple of places like that. Um, and he was just br like brilliant. Just a lovely bloke. Dave and Penny, Power Scouter, and another two. Dave was the, the front man. Um, but you'd go into the office and see Penny and it's just, just brilliant. But again, back then, I think the um, development of raves, you'd always walk into the sanctuary, especially. And because the sanctuary was used so much, promoters would move the stage, change the stage in. You know, we did one for, I'm going to say Dreamscape, and he put the stage in the middle which was like mad. Do you know what I mean? We were just like, what? How mad's this? So it just gave always that different sort of perspective. And then when Raves started venturing back outside as well, that that was pretty cool. You know, that that was a pretty cool time to sort of see that, you know, finally we're, we're venturing to the outside again because it, it just seemed for, for a long time that big Raves had to be indoors. You know, these, these festival-type things would never come near Rave music. Um, but yeah, promoters, all of them at the time, um, all had a very similar sort of vision and idea. There were a few promoters, uh, very well known amongst DJs and MCs that were just a pain in the arse, I say is the nicest way, where they would just just permanently be battling you about everything from set times to wages to how they can, you know, promote things and you know, just just that they just had their, I suppose, their own vision of how it should be, but you know, from the artist sort of sides, that yeah, there were a few promoters that people wouldn't say didn't want to play for, but just used to think, oh, I've got to, you know, go there. But they were very few. Most of them, some are still around now, some are still in contact with, and they're still the same. You know, they're just very cool people to to know and been been around. <laughs> We really hope you're enjoying yet another one of Raw's in-depth interviews about the rave scene, which we are proud to say are now all curated into the British Library Sound Archive. All of us here at Raw HQ love how much you love what we do, and your generous one-off donations have been a huge help in covering our initial costs. But we're now a team of five, putting in a combined 80 hours a week for no wages, with big plans to expand further, and so our costs are going up. As such, we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing, as you've seen us do since our launch in July 2020. First up, go and check out our brand new website. It's rawuk.com, where you can find loads of cool extra content, and you can grab Raw's first ever range of merchandise. That's rawuk.com for our new flashy website. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can support us financially to create more content on an ongoing basis for less than the price of an oat milk cappuccino. Plus, you get great perks in return. Head to patreon.com forward slash rawukpods. That's patreon.com forward slash rawukpods to see exactly what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is basically the same. Uh, or if you're not asked about a membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or a repeat donation, then head to our website and click the PayPal link. A reminder of that new website URL yet again, rawuk.com. Big love and respect to you all. Please keep supporting us. Hope you enjoyed the rest of the app. August 2021, a new event, Return to Source, celebrating 90s rave, hardcore, jungle, happy hardcore, drum and bass, and techno. Touches down at Suki 10C in Digbeth, Birmingham. 
We have Fusion South Coast legend DJ Druid, Quest and Fiber Optics DJ Fallout, the uprising northern legend that is DJ Paulo, and London Town's final trickster playing his first happy hardcore set in over 18 years. Tickets are priced at only £14. Just search Facebook and Eventbrite for Return to Source Radio. Ian Hicksey, uh, we've talked about Bonkers. Now, this is Bonkers, actually. Uh, just before the release of Bonkers 4, you were out walking your dog and you broke your neck. Is that correct? No, well, yeah, but no. Uh, this is this is again. This is the mad thing with the racing. There's there's things always get screwed or turned or twisted. Um, I did it on a motorbike, and I've okay. done it. On, I've done it twice, and I've done it on a jet ski. Um, oh. So yeah, it, it was. It wasn't. It, well, it is obviously serious. Um, but yeah, I wasn't walking my dog. I don't know where that, that that's come from. <laughs> so the first time you did it, ha- I mean, that's that's even more bonkers. You've done it twice. Um, the yeah. first time was how? Sorry, not on a jet ski. I, no, but I went. I went through a car. Oh God, what was that like? Out the other window, and I was <laughs> hanging out the, the window the other side. They oh pulled out God. in front of me. How but terrifying! Can't remember nothing. All all I can remember was, um. Again, my my poor mum. She worked at the time at the hospital, um, so the she heard overheard fire work that I was being brought in. So she was at work and had heard my name because they had radio through to say this is happening. So yeah, that 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 one brilliant. But all I can remember from that was at the time it was all about Ralph Lauren and you know your, your stupid bloody horse on your 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 t shirt. And the only thing I can remember was because they were sort of cutting my jeans and bits and bobs off me because they didn't know what had gone on. And I was like, don't cut my Ralph Lauren T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> what? You know, and he's mad because I can still remember. My dad was like, you absolute dick. You, you're a fool. You know what I mean? Just sort it out. And I was just like, don't cut it. Don't cut it. <laughs> so what, imp- what impact did it have upon, on, upon you? Because if it was just before Bonkers 4, is that is that right? Have we got that bit yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, bonkers. Was it bonkers for one of them? I mixed in in a in a in a block doing it in the hospital. Parts of it in the hospital. What? Yeah, yeah. How but long? Were you, how long were you in hospital for? Oh, um, it was quite a while. It was, it was a good sort of three weeks, four weeks. Right. And how did you get a dex into the, the hospital? Well, no, what we did, we did. <laughs> it, it, this was the first time I started doing bits and bobs with a computer, which. For me, it was like this is not the sort of the same, but we'd sort of just got ideas and I was laying bits and bobs out, knowing that I had deadlines to get sorted. There was sort of no, you know, I was all right, I was absolutely fine. And I, I sort of like, and I was in and out of hospitals, I wasn't there sleeping every night because I had this like stupid bloody contraption thingy over my face and head well not over my face but sort of in my head um and i came home and i think it was force and styles had come down to sort of see me and uh, like they sort of walked in and i was there like this with this stupid thing on my head and i was just like what what is that so you broke your neck 
before bonkers four and and you were having to you know do some stuff in in the hospital and probably i've got to say i i've never broken my neck but i can't imagine it's all that pleasant and easy and therefore to run to be a self-employed record producer and dj who requires to stand up and do things with his arms and is you know must have been incredibly difficult was it how did you manage it yeah i mean to be honest i was lucky it wasn't whilst it was serious the, the only implication I've had, ever had since, and I still have, I have massive problems with my arm, like like really bad pains. And it's took me out again from work on and off. I've, uh, you know, people tend to moan there was a massive era where, uh, or stages where I just wasn't making gigs. Um, and people would always be like, oh, he ain't turned out again, he ain't turned out again. Well, truth is, I, it wasn't intent. People think, it, oh, you can't be bothered. That's my job. You know what I mean? I love doing it. But at points, it took me out of the game. And, you know, still now, mine mine is, I, I always sort of seasonal, I say, because as the weather changes, I seem to feel it a lot more. So as it gets warmer, I feel it. And then when the cold comes again, I start feeling it again. And yeah, on and off, it has affected me. At the time, I was probably a little bit more blasé about it than I should have been. I should have took it a bit more serious. But I think where yeah. I was young, I didn't actually have any pain, pain from it. You know, the accident, I'd had a few bumps and, and some my, my knees were quite badly bruised. But apart from that, I didn't have anything serious. So and because I couldn't actually feel it, I think if I had a broken arm, you, you'd sort of be feeling things. But I couldn't. It was everything felt almost normal to me. So um, I sort of almost plodded on straight away. I was like, right, let's just sort of get back to it. So, and I mean, you've said that you didn't go, you weren't, didn't make it to gigs because of this, uh, because of your condition at the time. It, so, it obviously did have an impact upon you, and and I wonder whether it had any impact upon your DJing, for instance. Because the reason I ask this, and I'm sorry to if it, if it if it's rude, but I'm reflecting what it says on Amazon. There's an Amazon review of Bonkers Four that it said that it impacted upon your mix and beyond. Now, given that you were sort of mixing it down in the hospital, that's not a huge surprise. But is is that true? Is there is there anything in that, or is that unfair? Um, yeah, I, I spent my head was sideways, to be honest. It, you know, whilst I thought I was in the game, I probably was, wasn't. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and uh, along, along, like even now, if I, if I stay, if the decks are at the wrong height, it, it really gives me jip. It's, it's quite right. painful at points. Yeah, oh, I can use that as an excuse why I've got a grumpy face on. But um, yeah, if it's. Or well, you do pots and pans. <laughs> if, the, um, if the decks are at the wrong height, mm. oh, God, I stand there and I just think get me off just it's, it's quite uncomfortable sometimes mm. um but yeah it, it comes and goes i i cannot complain from the 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 sort of break right through till now you know i know it could have been a lot more serious and and what i get as side effects i sort of think well it, it could be a million times worse it's crap sometimes like i said i've missed gigs i've missed a lot of gigs and i've got a lot of shit online from it but i don't feel the 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 I don't ever feel the urge to explain everything to everyone who demands a, an explanation. Sometimes it's like, well, you know, a, a lot of the gigs I missed, I then got back up there and, and, and sort of, you know, did it as soon as I sort of could. Um, and yes, yeah, some that they never came back in and, and booked us again, but it, it can't be happening. That's the hard thing with the type of job I do. I suppose you're, you're booked so far in advance. You can't see what's going to, be happening you know you don't know whether you're gonna you know i know some of the boys that have had perforated eardrums and things like that or been poorly and they miss gigs and yeah i get it if someone's there to see them dj and they don't turn up 
they've paid their ticket price. They're like, fuck you sort of thing. But I honestly don't know anyone that would say, nah, I'm not going to that tonight. Can't no, be bothered. No. Yeah, I can't. I generally can't. I do see it from the other side of the punter point of view or the, the Ravers and through the promoters. You know, they spent months getting this event together. And then all of a sudden, one of their artists can't turn up. It's shite. You know, it must do their brains in. But yeah, I've never intentionally gone, nah, not tonight. I, I mean, the thing is, I think a lot of time people don't realize that there's a human <laughs> at the other end. Or, or you know, Hixie is a person and yeah. therefore he has all of the different things. You know, sometimes you're going through a rave, you've got a ticket and you can't be asked because you're knackered. You're like, oh, I really can't bother. And so you don't go, but it doesn't matter because it's only your money. You know, you are merely human. You're just the same as the punter. Just, um, you know, that's your job. Um, another thing is around about that time, I mean, you were so busy. You were doing Kiss FM shows as well. Like you were also, I understand that around about that time, Slamming Vinyl got you to book the DJ lineups. And is that is is that right? Is that correct? No, never done a Slamming Vinyl lineup. Is that right? <laughs> no. Don't know where that's come from. That's not me. Well, I, well, a few people have said that they understood that you did that, like Gary Viber, like for instance, mentioned it. No, it's absolutely, absolutely not true. No, not true. Definitely not. No, never. Right. Okay. That's interesting. All right. Well, in that case, that's that's that question gone. In, yeah, in fact, yeah. well, there you go. Uh, and to uh, move on, then in the latter stages of the nineties, you were playing several gigs every weekend, running a record label, producing prolifically, radio show. How did you manage to fit it all in? Um, but I, again, thinking now to back then, I didn't have kids, so <laughs> that's that, probably that, the, that'll do it. <laughs> that's probably the easiest answer. As and again, as manic as it is, back back then, I, I, I've had this discussion with a few people that have done the same. Back then, honestly, we were some weekends you'd have sort of three and sometimes four gigs, but the the, the four now of trying to fit that in in one night, I don't know how actually we did do it. You know, I generally don't. You know, again, back then, I think all the DJs got banned very, very regularly. It'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. You know, that's me sort of banned. And they'd start brocking up to get events for their drivers and things. Um, but, yeah, I suppose it was just, it was that was it. It was just that part of that momentum that, you know, you, during the week, he was in the studio, going up to London. And that's the other thing, you know, the thought of going up to London now it drives me mad. You know, it's, it's it's a whole sort of like, I've got to go to London. Is there any way I can get out of this? Can I do it over the phone? It's horrible. But we'd just pop up to London. It'd be like, oh, I'm going to pop up to London because, I don't know, Sitmat's down doing dubs or Dougal has got a slot at JTS, one of the other places. And you would literally pop to London for the day. You know that that that's like I don't know. I suppose to just life just, gets in the way. Life gets in the way, doesn't it? The older yeah, you get, I, I think so. You know, we we again, I've had this chat with with a lot of uh, the the people I'm, I'm sort of friends with still. That um, some of them I don't speak to for months on end. Some some like once a year, but you start talking to them again, and you're like, oh, it's like I was talking to you yesterday. And I suppose as you get older, you you get you say it's sad in a way that you don't sort of talk to each other on a as a regular basis but like you said their their lives go go into a direction that they've got things going on and so, same with uh, me but yeah it is nice you know there's friends out there from from the rave scene that you know like I said I'll touch base with some of them regular still some of them once in the blue moon but you just sit on the phone for an hour and then you put the phone down it's like oh 
I was talking to it feels like I was talking to him on a weekly basis still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and sort of heading towards the end of 1999, um, Hardcore was in a steep decline. Uh, much of the production simply wasn't very good. Cheesy rip-offs of 80 ballad, uh, 80s ballads and everything sounding the same, etc. You yourself have, have, have admitted was the case uh, in the past. What did you put that down to and how did you feel about it? Um, my, my personal opinion, it's really weird. I, I just got this, I suppose, a, a line of there's some things that I just detested. There was stuff that I liked. And I think it just evolved and evolved into more of a direction that I didn't like as much as it. You know, I, even my own productions, I was sort of sitting there thinking, no, this isn't this isn't what I'm liking at all. Um, and it definitely started showing at the events, you know, the, the numbers were d declining. And then when you had some of the key promoters saying, well, I don't think we're going to book hardcore anymore, happy hardcore anymore. Um, at everything or other venues they were going to, that that made you suddenly sort of think, well, hang on, are, are, are we so sort of enclosed in it all that we've not realised that we've we've taken it into a direction? Or I've took myself, I can't talk for others, but I took myself into a direction that wasn't as accessible or enjoyable on, on a dance floor. Um, and had we lost that magic or whatever it was, you know, that, that back in the day. So I think um, for, for me, again, you know, we was forever. And even now we still talk about music and what direction we're making stuff and what noises we're using, what equipment we're using. You know, it's, it's an ongoing thing that producers, DJs, people who make music will still always be talking to each other about their sound. And even back then, you, you know, we were, um, one of the things I wanted to say to you because there was the this a meeting that that we well got. you've just preempted my next question well, well done Ian but this is the thing that it's come across since your podcast that this was some sort of secretive <laughs> you can tell I used to work for the news of the world Ian can't well, you <laughs> honestly, I, I never saw it as that I, it was just literally tell us, tell, tell us about it because it, it is fascinating because as far as we we, we know it to, for anybody that hasn't listened to some of the previous podcasts just to let them know what we've said Force and Styles told us about that meeting uh, to save hardcore that's the uh, the sort of way that it was seen at Slamming Vinyl HQ in Enfield and I'm really interested to know about your memories of the day was there anyone in particular who was outspoken at that meeting who said what including you um all that sort of thing I, we're just really interested to know and, and to get yeah. everyone's take who was there um I, it, for me it didn't say, it wasn't a secretive meeting as far as i know slam and vinyl had just got together predominantly the people they booked a lot and there were some other people that was very influential in their music with labels and things like that and the hard thing with any meeting like that, there's been calls for scene meetings since and, you know, up until recently. But the hard thing is, is who do you invite? And it's not that you don't invite people, but if you invite everyone that's doing stuff towards the scene, you won't have a room big enough to get everyone in and then no one's voices be heard. So there has to be a sort of cutoff point, I suppose. And it wasn't a deliberate, as far as I know, they want a deliberate cutoff point. Um, it was no, don't invite that person, but invite that person. It was literally, we're thinking of not putting on as much hardcore at the moment and the numbers are dropping. Our tape pack sales are dropping. Everything, the merchandise, all, all the interest in this music and this scene is dropping. So we went there. And again, as far as I can remember, 
I thought it was a great meeting. Um, you know, there were people very vocal about their ideas. And again, this is why I, I you know, I quite love any type of music. But the rave music was because there were so many sort of, uh, I always say yin and yang is perfect. It's just so important. And if you've got someone that wants to make music a certain way, then no one should really dictate how it should be. But at this meeting, it was a discussion to see if we'd missed something, if we'd, you know, like I said, if it had it evolved in such a way that it wasn't accessible or fun for people anymore. Um, and there were some people, the main crux of it was, was it the BPM? You know, had it gone too fast? And I, um, I've always been open to variant speeds in sets. I, I think it's a, it's a great way to... Um, you know, push the crowd up, down, left, right, and all, all of that. So there was people talking about the, the speeds. Um, some of the artists wanted their labels to to stay uh, in a certain direction because they were doing well. You know, their sales were great. They were popular. Um, and that was it. And I wouldn't say we came away from the meeting solving anything. Um, it just, for me, it was good, great food for thought to hear such a cross-section, again, of artists all in one room from the MCs to the record labels. I think some of the promoters were there. I'm not understanding. I can't I forget, I can't remember all of it, but I can remember walking away and thinking, well, you know, you've got your left and your right and middle and you know this whole yin and yang concept for me is uh you know important and and I think so, so what, what what was the what was the conclusion of the meeting, if there was one, that that, that, that something needed to happen to help the, the the perilous situation in which Happy Hardcore scene found itself? Well, at the time, I think, I might be wrong on this, at the time, I think the name Happy Hardcore was a, you know, look, you know, er, er, there was a lot of people saying the, the name Happy Hardcore, it just feels outdated, it doesn't feel credible, you know, and I I've understood all along my career that where uh, not the butt of every joke, that's the wrong wrong expression, but, you know, you get some people that feel it necessary to, uh, they feel it necessary to say they don't like the music rather than just not mention it. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's tons of music I don't like. There's tons of music I don't like within my own scene, but don't feel the need to um, earn a brownie point by saying, oh, 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 I don't like that. You know, like you just, and, and that's always happened with hardcore. And, the name Happy Hardcore definitely felt, on from my point of view, I know others seem to say the same thing, but it did feel at the time very dated. Again, the name Happy Hardcore, now I'm quite pleased of it, I suppose. I, I, I like the fact because it's now in a, in, a, in a department or an era back there. Do you know what I mean? And, and I enjoy diving into it. I'm so proud of what it done for me. And, you know, now my family, everything around me is because of this rave scene, you know, even to the point of where I met my wife. So that means my kids, everything, every moment of my life is because of music uh, and the hardcore scene and the happy hardcore scene. So I'm never embarrassed by it. I just I just understand the fact that some people, you know, have, have a very outspoken opinion of it within the scene or within the, the you know, the under what would be the underground sort of market, I suppose. Uh, and I've come across it all, all along. And back then, especially, you know, we, we on and off, we tried to sort of get more coverage on Radio One. Well, everywhere, everywhere. And you, the doors seem to just be shut 
on you. You know, it would really be one of them moments you'd walk away, you know, or put the phone down and you just think, this is just so soul-destroying because at points we were, you know, at the, the, at the peak of the height of rave music and happy hardcore, but we were still getting sort of turned down on things because you know, of its imagery and maybe its age range uh, and and the, the sort of looking at it, if you walked into a rave full pout, ready to go as an outsider, you, their heads must have just been like, uh, because it was a spectacle, you know, but if you're in it, it's unreal. There is nothing, nothing like it, you know, being in the midst of a rave, uh, the BPM doesn't sound fast sometimes. You know, once you're in there, you're like, this is mental. But walking in in it or diving in on it, I get it. You know, I've always understood that. I found it hard at points, you know, when we've been shut down from um, getting it onto right, certain radio stations or, you know, over the years I've had you know, almost offers of bits and bobs going on certain TV programmes and then last minute it's like, oh, no, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. You know, you just sort of think, oh. um so yeah, the meeting. Um, I've gone off on one a bit. Yeah, the meeting. Um, it was about the name Happy Hardcore bit. I think okay. I'm sure that was that meeting. Um, but we, I walked away. Speed as well. It's a bit of speed, bit yeah, of the speed. name. It, 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 in your eyes, and we'll come on. And we'll in the next part, we're going to go on to um, Millennium Jam and uh, and what happened with that. It was pretty pretty disaster, really. Um, did the meeting do anything? Yeah, I think so. For me, I, I still there were bits of it that I just took as that's great, you know, and and hearing other people's sort of ideas of where they wanted to go and what they thought, I think I just picked out the bits that I thought were relevant to what I wanted to. I still wanted to go in a a slightly different direction with my music, regardless of this meeting. I got to a stage where I didn't like what I was producing. You know, I got to that stage. I'd hit that point personally. Um, but yeah, I, I walked away definitely and speaking to some of the boys afterwards that there was definitely more focus on, right, well, this, this is what we should do, you know, and it, it almost, it sort of like reinvigorated everyone to be like, rather than being in this rut that we're sort of feels like we're in, well, let's, let's crack on then, you know, let's buzz about it and let's see what's what. And it didn't take long after the meetings really for, you know, a few things happened, a few key events sort of then did come along and, um, it, it, it felt like um, there was a bit of change in the air. Well, we're going to talk uh, further about the death and rebirth of Hardcore, which, of course, you played a major role in next time here on Raw. Well, that's it for another episode of Raw. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love you to get involved. All of us here at Raw HQ buzz hard of how much you, the Raw crew, enjoy our work and your generous cash donations have been a huge help since our launch. But we're now a team of five, putting in combined 80 hours a week for no wages. We've got loads of plans to go further, expand our team and offer, but that does mean that our costs are also increasing. So we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing as you've done since we started. So please do check out our website initially. It's rawuk.com for interesting extra content and to get your hands on our first ever range of raw merchandise that's rawuk.com we've also launched a new membership scheme where you can donate to create more interesting and fun content on an ongoing basis and you'll even get stuff in return so head to patreon.com forward slash rawukpods that's patreon.com forward slash rawukpods to see what's on offer 
You can also join our YouTube membership, which is the same. Or if you're not bothered about membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or repeat donation, head to our website and click the PayPal link. That website URL, one more time, rawuk.com. Respect to you for your support and for getting to the end of this episode. Please keep supporting us and help ensure there's more quality content coming your way on a regular basis. Oi, oi. Hang on a minute. Hi. Naked wife. <laughs>